Did you ask the Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden? No, actually, I didn't. I asked the Ukraine to investigate the allegations that there was interference in the election of 2016 by the Ukrainians for the benefit of Hillary Clinton, for which there already is a court finding. You never asked anything about Hunter Biden. You never asked anything about Joe Biden. The only thing I asked about Joe Biden is to get to the bottom of how it was that Lutsenko, who was appointed, dismissed the case against Antak. So you did ask Ukraine to look into Joe Biden? Of course I did. Hello and welcome to Impeach Pod, a Donald Trump <laughs> podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. Today I am joined by the man with that evil laughter, Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you? Uh, finally, finally on Impeach Pod, the show I never knew I wanted to be on. We are the only ones that can do this, kind of. Yeah, that's right. This is this is this is our show. This is ours. So on this week's show, we are going to respond to breaking news that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has announced that the U.S. House will begin a formal impeachment inquiry of President Trump. Her announcement follows news that broke over the weekend about Trump urging the Ukrainian president to investigate Joe Biden's son, while at the same time withholding military aid funds that Congress had appropriated to go to Ukraine. All of this while the administration withholds from Congress an intelligence community whistleblower report that they are typically legally obligated to deliver, which at least in part relates to President Trump's interaction with the Ukrainian president. So we're going to recap all of this, and then we're going to talk about the reaction here in Georgia. Uh, All four Democratic Senate candidates have announced at this point that they, in some form, support an impeachment inquiry. Which is news. Which is news. And... Some in the Georgia delegation, John Lewis, Hank Johnson, David Scott, have all announced that they support House Speaker Pelosi in this inquiry. Lucy McBath is at this point, at the time that we're recording on Tuesday evening, she is notably absent from that list. So we'll also take a look at the Georgia angle and talk about how it impacts campaign 2020. But first, let's just start at the place that you've probably heard about, which is what Speaker Nancy Pelosi had to say on Tuesday afternoon. For the past several months, we have been investigating in our committees and litigating in the courts so the House can gather all the relevant facts and consider whether to exercise its full Article I powers, including a constitutional power of the utmost gravity, approval of articles of impeachment. And this week, the President has admitted to asking the president of Ukraine to take actions which would benefit him politically. The, action of the, tr- the actions of the Trump presidency revealed dishonorable fact of the president's betrayal of his oath of office, betrayal of our national security, and betrayal of the integrity of our elections. Therefore, today, I'm announcing the House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. I'm directing our six committees to proceed with their investigations under that umbrella of impeachment inquiry. The president must be held accountable. No one is above the law. All right. So that's what Nancy Pelosi had to say. We are in an impeachment inquiry. Luke, what did you think of her statement this afternoon? Honestly, I was kind of shocked by how unequivocal uh, Speaker Pelosi has been. For people who have been following this story, Speaker Pelosi was not someone who was advocating for impeachment. And to me, it seemed like she wasn't advocating for impeachment, not just because she was concerned for some of 
her members in swing districts and that they had expressed concern. But I think she also was not a fan of going down this route. And so I point that out because this is really not a, there's no question marks at the end of her sentences that she comes out and very clearly says that Donald Trump has violated the law. Donald Trump has violated the constitution and that he should be impeached for these things. And that we are now entering a formal impeachment inquiry to basically, at least from what seems like her perspective is so that we can get the full details of the violations and so that we can uh, vote to impeach him. That is what I took from her statement. And I think the fact that she got to that position over a seven-day period, if not less, is really striking and really highlights to me just how damning these allegations are. Yeah, I think there's two ways to look at what Speaker Pelosi's statement meant today. Politically, I think it was unequivocal. She, This was the firmest that she had been on impeachment. This was the most out front that she had been on impeachment. Um, but there is another way in which to look at it, which is congressional process. If you've been following this closely, you might have noticed that over the last few weeks, Democrats have been filing motions in court related to various investigations related to what could be a broad impeachment inquiry. And they have been saying in court filings that they were already in this as a matter of the status of what the the House of Representatives is doing and why courts and court filings should take it seriously. So essentially what Pelosi said today from a process standpoint is the House is where the House has been saying they are in these court filings. And there isn't necessarily a guarantee at this point in terms of process that there will be a vote on the floor to have the entire House approve launching of this impeachment inquiry. Um, there are still several procedural steps that have to happen. And so I did see some sort of notes of caution from congressional procedure analysts and uh, reporters on Capitol Hill this afternoon. But politically, I don't think you can walk back from this. So I think that politically, that sort of overrules what's there on process. And yeah, I'm I'm like you, Luke. I'm, I'm struck by how definitive this statement sounds at this point. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that they were saying they were an impeachment inquiry for the legal standing that it gave them, that for whatever reason, courts just take it a little bit more seriously if you say, hey, I'm investigating these uh, allegations of wrongdoing if you say hey i'm investing these <laughs> investigating these allegations of wrongdoing as part of an impeachment inquiry for whatever reason that opens up some more legal avenues for you and i i think what this means is that there is inevitably going to be a vote on this question somewhere of importance i imagine it will begin in those committees and then it will go to the floor pelosi is not known for throwing out you know ideas and throwing out uh you know uh accusations and you know hinting things to the press she's pretty straightforward so the fact that she has said not only that they are doing an impeachment inquiry but she began her statements by saying that trump has done things that should lead to his impeachment I think that means that a vote on this is inevitable and that it's just that they're going to dot all their I's and cross all their T's before they have something that hits the floor. 
so we are we are here. We are officially in impeachment inquiry land. But I think if you haven't been reading the news closely over the weekend, you might be a little bit confused about how we got here. So I think there's three pieces of information to start with that may have contributed today to the dam essentially breaking among moderate Democratic resistance to impeachment that has largely kept us from landing in this place until today. The first piece of evidence is a report on Friday from the Wall Street Journal, which said that during a phone call in July, President Trump urged Ukraine's president about eight times to work with Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal lawyer, on an investigation into Joe Biden's son. And then subsequent reporting would later confirm that that incident is, at least in part, the subject of a whistleblower complaint that was filed by a U.S. official in the intelligence agency. And this whistleblower complaint describes a troubling promise made during a conversation between the president and a foreign leader. But at this point, as of today, we do not know the full contents of that whistleblower complaint. So these two things are related because that's what's in the complaint. And then what has seemed to precipitate outrage from Democrats on Capitol Hill is that the Trump administration has refused to turn over this whistleblower complaint. It's a complaint that originated in the intelligence community, in the executive branch, but by but which by law, and we can talk about the legal ins and outs of this in a second, but by law, it is believed that the executive branch is required to turn that whistleblower complaint over to congressional leader, congressional leaders on the intelligence committees in the House and the Senate. So there's those two pieces of information that we'll describe more more fully here in a minute. But there's a third piece that I think is important to include here, which was that on Monday night, the Washington Post reported that Trump had instructed his acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, earlier this summer to hold back almost $400 million in military aid from Ukraine. This is aid that has been congressionally appropriated to go to Ukraine in the executive branch was withholding the transmission of that money from Ukraine, and that he instructed his chief of staff to withhold this money at least a week before the call in question that he had with the Ukrainian president. So what is you if you connect the dots in all of these things, what has outraged lawmakers at this point is that this whistleblower complaint exists, it's not being turned over, and that at the same time, the Trump administration is withholding this money, and there is no explicit alternative reason for why it is being withheld. So Luke, when you saw all of this news over the weekend, and and as we were preparing to do the show today, what was your reaction to this confluence of events all together? My my reaction was that this is basically just collusion. (laughs) And... (laughs) I mean, there's no really collusion. no, there's, yeah, it's just, it's so amazing to me just how hard Donald Trump worked to convince us that there was no collusion, that Robert Mueller basically finds that there wasn't. And the thing that Donald Trump takes away from all of those events is I should collude. Ah, <laughs> uh, so that, that aside, um, the, the amazingness of that aside, I think, how we got here is important to think about because I think it's going to affect where we go from here. I think the reason that this situation is happening is because Donald Trump thinks this is how presidents operate. Donald Trump thinks that this is normal, that people do this type of thing all the time. Now, how do we know this? 
We know this because Donald Trump has told us this, that he believes these things. And he explicitly told George Stephanopoulos in an interview a couple months ago that if a country, I think he used Norway as example, had information (laughs) on one of his opponents and wanted to share it with him, that he would, of course, accept that information. It didn't turn out to be Norway. It did not. It turned out to be Ukraine. And the whole situation... I cannot think of a situation that Donald Trump could have created for himself that would have been more likely to result in his impeachment. Because not only is he withholding a lot of things that he's legally obligated to send over, not only is he trying to collude with a foreign government to provide him assistance in the upcoming 2020 election, but he is doing it with Ukraine, who, oh, I don't know, their biggest geopolitical threat right now is a Russia. Which, you know, is the same country that he was accused of colluding with. And so it's just, it's amazing, <laughs> the the logic of these people. Because the other thing that I found just fascinating is that not only is Rudy Giuliani just saying the, you know, quiet part out loud and just admitting that they did this, even the more, like, traditional, in quotation marks on an audio format, of course, uh, members of this administration, like Mike Pompeo, as I was watching the the Sunday shows this weekend, he like when people asked him about this of like if you know basically the question of did Donald Trump, the president of the United States, pressure a foreign government to assist him in the you know, election, he just deflected by saying like, well, you know, we want corruption to be investigated everywhere, <laughs> as if a not confirmed. No real detailed at all allegations of corruption against Joe Biden's son is more substantive and more important than actual corruption actually performed by the current president of the United States. Uh, it's, it's just amazing. It's amazing that this is the situation we find ourselves in. It's other people's corruption. It's not his corruption. Right, exactly. So yeah, to let Donald Trump have his due here, the way that he describes this is that it was a friendly or, conversation. Or the the way that he and his administration have described this is that is it was a friendly and perfect conversation, um, and that the reason that the a the military aid was withheld from Ukraine was because Ukraine had recently undergone a transition in government. They had an election. They had a new president, and uh, that President Trump was concerned about corruption in Ukraine, and that the money the military aid money that the U.S. would send, that it wouldn't actually go to its stated purpose. There isn't really a lot of evidence for that claim prior to him feeling like he needs to make it now, because when this aid was being delayed and when there was bipartisan pressure from Congress to have that aid money released, all Mick Mulvaney would allow administration officials to say about this was that the aid was undergoing an interagency review and that nothing else was allowed to be said. That's according to Washington Post reporting. The other thing that Trump has said directly in response to the press this week is that he never conditioned the military aid on the president of Ukraine launching or supporting this investigation of Joe Biden's son. But the the concern that has been raised, I've seen Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut raise this. I've seen this otherwise discussed generally. There doesn't need to be an explicit quid pro quo for the president of the United States to abuse his power in trying to use the authority of his office and the authority over foreign policy to leverage another country to do something that is to the political benefit 
of the President of the United States. And the other thing I think is good to point out at this point is that we are recording this on Tuesday. Uh, the Trump administration has said that they're going to release the full transcript of their the conversation that is at the source of these allegations tomorrow. I don't know what's in them. I don't know if they will actually release the full conversation. It's hard to tell. But the one thing I, I would take a guess at is that Donald Trump probably is not going to say, hey, President of Ukraine, please investigate Joe Biden's son or I will not give you military aid. Because we have, one, very few people would be that dumb. Two, and far more importantly, Michael Cohen has made it clear that Donald Trump just doesn't do things like that. He doesn't say things like that. He makes it clear that he has a way of hinting at what he would like you to do without actually explicitly making that quid pro quo connection because while Donald Trump watched too, too much TV and he watches too many movies, he watches too much TV and he watches too many movies and so he knows that that is how you get yourself arrested. <laughs> Anyone who watches too much TV knows that you cannot do quid pro quo and you can't say statements like that. So I imagine that it will seem like a friendly jabbing, hey, how about you investigate Hunger Biden? You know, that would be great. Corruption's bad. But it, it's the amount of times. It's the fact that the allegation from uh, various sources that he asked over eight times, and the fact that the uh, military aid has been denied from Ukraine for such a long time, I imagine logical people can make a connection, and I imagine Donald Trump would hope that the president of Ukraine would make the same connection. Well, and what Chris Murphy has said was that the Ukrainian president told him that that was the impression the Ukrainian president got, that this aid was being withheld because of them not uh, acceding to the president's demands on the investigation. Now, I think this point that you raised, Luke, is, is an important time to bring up the whistleblower complaint because there is a pattern here that can potentially be repeated by Trump and his administration that we saw in the way that they described the Mueller report. And this is what makes the whistleblower complaint such an important component of this. So this whistleblower complaint... It's important because, as described in the reporting, the, the full whistleblower report has not been seen, but as described in the reporting, the whistleblower report raises issues about more than just one single phone call, uh, that it's based on multiple communications, and that it alludes to some sort of a promise. Now, the Wall Street Journal article that broke the news about the phone call says that in the phone call, President Trump did not mention the military aid. So if you connect the dots, and this part is speculation, but if you connect the dots, there is some other avenue through which maybe the military aid, but some other form of a promise is relevant here and has been reported in this whistleblower complaint that is currently being withheld from Congress. So Luke, what are some of the legal issues at play here because this whistleblower report is largely governed by existing statute, what are the legal issues uh, that are going on with this complaint? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of complicated issues going around, so I want to make this one as simple as possible because it is actually incredibly simple. Basically, for certain whistleblower complaints, when they go to the inspector general, there is a classification for those complaints that is called credible and urgent. The inspector general classified this report as 
credible, and urgent. If a report has that classification, it shall be shared with Congress. Period. There is no question in the statute. There is no ambiguity. Shall is one of those, like, words they tell you not to use because it me- there's no leeway with it unless you really want it to mean that. And so when Congress wrote that statute, that's what they wanted it to mean. And so what has happened is that the administration has violated the law by not allowing the Inspector General to share that with Congress. So there really is not a debate here because shall means shall. And they, the Inspector General should hand over this piece of paper, this complaint, whatever form it's in, or resign because he's currently in violation of the law. So it's not to clarify here, and and I think that they're I'm the non lawyer here. Luke is well, I'm not a lawyer either. I'm just in law school. Right. I'm not even in law school. But to clarify here, I did read about a little bit of a debate over this. So so the process is that the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community makes this designation. He passes the complaint along to the Director of National Intelligence, and the shall applies to the Director of National Intelligence. The the DNI shall transmit that complaint to Congress, but is allowed to include his own commentary, basically. What the Director of National Intelligence did, acting DNI, Joseph McGuire, he involved the Department of Justice, the Department of Justice's Office of Legal Counsel, who took a look at the statute and came to their own interpretation about what this whistleblower protection statute means. And what what the administration is now arguing is that because the complaint is about conduct committed by someone who is not a member of the intelligence community and who is not under the authority of the director of national intelligence, that is because it is Donald Trump, the president, who is the subject of the complaint. And the statute doesn't actually compel the administration to turn over the complaint. I think the legal debate here turns on Office of Legal Counsel of the Department of Justice is not in the statute as somebody who gets to make that designation. The Inspector General of the Intelligence Community is the one who makes that designation. But what I think is going to be argued here based on some of the reading that I did is that the material that is a part of this complaint is subject to executive privilege. And that is why the administration will try to argue that they don't have to turn over this complaint. So this is where, to me, this is just my amateur legal speculation here. This is, to me, where impeachment becomes really important because the subject of the complaint, which maybe arguably is subject to executive privilege, maybe not, is conduct that the House can argue constitutes an impeachable offense. And so if the House is saying, look, the administration is sitting on information that is potentially an impeachable offense that we believe and that we are instituting a process to find out if it's an impeachable offense. And not only is that our opinion, but that the inspector general of the intelligence community deemed this a credible and urgent complaint that he said dealt with one of the core responsibilities of the intelligence community, election security, then we should have access to that complaint. And that's why in my speculation, moving to the level of impeachment here makes it 
more likely in my view that the administration will be forced to turn over this complaint. But on top of that, you know, that there's a lot of legal stuff there. On top of that, the inspector general of the intelligence community has apparently communicated to Adam Schiff, the the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, that he would like to testify to the Congress about this complaint and that he is coordinating right now with the director of national intelligence, the administration official withholding the complaint about how to do that. So it does appear that there is an effort here to get this complaint forward, but it also appears this is going to be a legal fight. Right. And it, the problem is here is we have an administration that really doesn't care what the law is. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's why we're here. It's because we have a Justice Department that is acting as the president's personal attorney, not as a, un, you know, a neutral arbiter of the law. So let's talk about the politics of this. But before we get to that, the other piece of this here is is what implicates Joe Biden and, and Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden. And the way this has been described in multiple press accounts is that this is basically a conspiracy theory that Trump has adopted, that there is no evidentiary basis for, and that he has not supplied any evidence about uh, through raising these complaints. Um, so, so just wanted to make that clear before we move on to the politics. Luke, the biggest political question here is why do this if it's going to fail in the Senate? And at this point, as of the time that we're recording, there is not some mad dash by Republicans to join Democrats in embracing this impeachment inquiry. So why do this if it's likely to fail in the Senate? Let's assume that the allegations are true for this scenario, because I think that would be the only scenario in which this would become a question that the Senate brings up. If these allegations are true, that Donald Trump, the President of the United States, withheld military aid from a country who is being attacked and attempted to be have their territory annexed by our by the words of Senator Mitt Romney, our greatest geopolitical threat, Russia. <laughs> I think Democrats and the American people would like the Republican Party to have to vote to say if they think that's okay or not. Because right now, they're getting a free pass. Right now, Mitt Romney and the other senators who are deemed in the media to be reasonable have basically said, oh, this is so unacceptable. Oh, we don't like Trump doing this. Okay, put your money where your mouth is. And so you either think it's acceptable or you think it's not. And I think at this point, Trump has done enough that it is time that they are forced to say if they agree with it or not. And I frankly do not care if the Senate exonerates him or not, because I think Democrats have nothing to lose if they have the opportunity to run against senators like David Perdue and say, David Perdue is okay with Donald Trump withholding military aid from Ukraine for his political advantage. Because effectively, if they vote against impeachment, that is what they are saying. And I think people are missing the fact that this is impeachment is an opportunity to hold Donald Trump accountable, but it's also an opportunity to hold Republicans accountable. The politics of impeachment are difficult 
you know, I think a lot of the reasons why Nancy Pelosi and John Lewis and some of the older Democrats who've been around for a long time, they remember the Clinton impeachment and how much it screwed up the Republicans in 1996. There's a big difference here, though. Bill Clinton lied about getting a blowjob, period. Like, that is, that is why he got impeached. Donald Trump is telling the truth about withholding military aid or, at the very least, even if not withholding military aid, pressuring Ukraine into investigating a political ally of his. Like, that's that second part is not up for negotiation. They have said that is what they did. And so, I think it's going to play out differently. And I think that, as many Democrat candidates are saying, like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, that the American political system is corrupt and has been corrupted by big interest and big business then I think there is no greater condemnation, no greater example than if Donald Trump is impeached in the House and exonerated by the Senate. I think that would be the textbook example of what they're talking about. And so there should be no fear in proceeding with this because they have told us they did something impeachable. They aren't hiding it. They're proud of it. And so on that front, there is really no option but this. Um, And I think the way that you... Uh, lose the 2020 election is you are cowardly and you are afraid to confront them on these issues, not because you believe they shouldn't be confronted, but you're afraid of what a voter would think in Ohio about you doing it. And so you go for the you know easy path and you don't fight this and you nominate someone who is boring and is not pushing for structural change in the way that most people think we need. And I think that's how you see a bunch of Democrats stay home uh, this next election. So let's talk about the political reaction to this in Georgia. This news did drop like a bomb on Tuesday, um, and we started to see a lot of dominoes fall. We started to see a lot of dominoes fall nationally in Congress, and this effect certainly uh, wiggled its way down to Georgia politics. As we are recording tonight, four Democrats in Georgia's House delegation have backed an impeachment inquiry. These four are John Lewis, Hank Johnson, David Scott, and Sanford Bishop was the last to back the inquiry this evening. The lone holdout there is Lucy McBath, the congresswoman from Georgia 6. She is probably in the swingiest district currently held by a Democrat in Georgia. And Tamar Hallerman, the AJC correspondent in Washington, she saw McBath in the halls of Congress today and described it this way on Twitter. Escorted by three staffers, Representative Lucy McBath refused to answer reporters' questions about impeachment as she left a closed-door meeting with Pelosi and other House Democrats. I find it really interesting that Lucy McBath is kind of the lone holdout here, but that slowly but surely today, the other four Democrats in the delegation decided to back the statement that Pelosi made at the end of the day that we're in an impeachment inquiry what do you make of Lucy McBath's uh, holdout as we are recording this podcast? I think Lucy McBath is trying to navigate a pretty insane political uh, circumstance, and she's a pretty new rep. And unlike all the other Georgia Democrats, she is not in a safely Democratic seat. She did not win by a lot last time, and I'm sure that her race is going to be incredibly competitive uh, in this upcoming election. And so I think. It's unsurprising that she's still trying to figure out 
uh, what to do. Now, you just made this case that this was a moral imperative, sort of regardless of the politics or that making opposing Republicans take this moral stand can be advantageous politically, even if it's not the best political environment. Do you think that that holds, you know, and you talked about David Perdue in that part, do you think that that holds in a more Republican leaning district like Georgia six, or does this add more of a political slam dunk for people in safer seats, but people in swingy seats need to be more cautious? I don't think they need to be more cautious. I just understand why she is being more cautious. I, I mean, I, I firmly believe that you cannot win an argument that you're not making. And now that you're in a situation where Donald Trump is probably going to be impeached, like you should probably, if you believe that he should be, and I, you know, I don't know Lucy McBath personally, I haven't asked her, but I imagine she probably thinks he should be, you know, you should follow your your instincts and your heart on that one rather than what political consultants are uh, telling you. I'm not suggesting that's why she's doing it. I don't know why she's not at, you know, out for it. I think the real answer is probably exactly what you said, Kyle, which was this basically all happened in the past 24 hours. And so they might just not know how they want to announce their support for the uh, impeachment yet. Maybe she wants to see what happens in some of the committees she's in. Uh, you know, it, she, she's a newer rep, whereas all these other reps have, have been there for quite some time. And, you know, it's obvious that, at least to me, that Lucy McMath is not trying to throw Hail Marys since she did not jump into the Senate race where there was quite clearly a lot of pressure for her to do that. Um, so I think it's been a uh, wild ride for her <laughs> the past week. So let's talk about how Senate candidates reacted. Uh, we did a little bit of reporting of our own today. We heard from uh, Teresa Tomlinson, the former mayor of Columbus, who's a Democratic Senate candidate. She sent us a statement saying that the entire point of impeachment proceedings is to assess with great urgency whether someone who would abuse power should be removed from office. We have cheated ourselves by not starting impeachment proceedings sooner. We could have perhaps stopped, deterred, or at least exposed the abuse. We need an immediate impeachment inquiry to begin. By the end of the day, after she sent us that statement, it appears that that's where we've landed. She sent us that statement first, and then both Ted Terry and Sarah Rigsamico, two other Democrats in that race, this afternoon, they announced that they would also support an impeachment inquiry. Ted Terry pointed to the reporting about the delayed military aid, and Sarah Rigsamico described the allegations as serious and that these serious allegations is what caused her to support the House's impeachment proceedings. John Ossoff said that the whistleblower complaint and transcript of his call with the Ukrainian president must be, deliver must be delivered to Congress, and that if Trump pressured a foreign power to smear his political opponent, dangling security assistance as leverage, he should be impeached. Luke, by the end of the day, basically all four Democrats currently in the Senate race landed generally in support of impeachment proceedings and of getting to the bottom of what transpired here. Was that surprising at all to you? I'm not really surprised that the Georgia Senate candidates got to this place on impeachment just because, like, just knowing Ted Terry politically, I kind of think he probably always wanted to impeach Donald Trump. And I think this is... Well, it's example. important to interrupt and say that he specifically told us that 
he saw political upside into be able to being able to run against Donald Trump in 2020, and that he would rather as that if he was a Democrat running for president, he would rather run against Donald Trump than Mike Pence, and that Mike Pence would be much worse for uh, Democratic constituencies for for policy in general if Mike Pence was to assume the presidency following Trump's ouster, which is like, probably true to be honest. Um, but that being said, I I, I just think for the argument that I laid out earlier of like why Democrats pretty much have to be uh, for impeachment, why I hope most Americans eventually will be there um, or at least understand the argument. I, I, I think it's just hard to be on the other side of this issue as a Democrat now because the, the Trump administration has been so incredibly blatant about the stuff they've been doing. Yeah, I think this is interesting, particularly in the Georgia context. If we play this out, and this is still an issue central to the campaign in 2020 in some form or fashion, because it, it sort of tests this theory. You know, there, there are folks on the left who say, maybe you don't want to be front and center on the impeachment stuff, because part of what drove Democrats to victory in 2018 and part of what is the biggest concern of people who are not frequent voters is issues like health care and economic security, and the Democrats should be running with those central to their campaign message. But when you look at a state like Georgia, where rural Georgia seems to be firmly in the hands of Republicans, but what has sort of precipitated Republican vulnerability in the state legislature and from a statewide perspective is their collapse in the suburbs. Voters in the suburbs may not be galvanized by Medicare for all or universal basic income or the Green New Deal, but they may look at what has happened in Washington in the last four years, look at President Trump screaming, no collusion, no collusion after 2016, and then turning around and doing something while president, leveraging his power as president to do something that can credibly be described as collusion and inviting foreign interference into elections, looking at the status of that in Washington and saying, oh, hell no. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, this is worse than collusion. Like, this is worse than what he was accused of doing if he actually did withhold the military aid. Because... In the 2016 scenario, Russia, because of their own interests, offered to help Donald Trump, and he just accepted that and coordinated with them. This is Donald Trump forcing, through blackmail, of withholding military aid to get help from a foreign government. This is him abusing his powers as the president to get help to wing re-election. If there is a, if an impeachable offense exists, it is this. Well, just playing this out into the politics, it's interesting. It would be interesting to see if this is a more galvanizing issue that would drive moderate Republicans to come over to the Democratic column to potentially push Georgia into the Democratic column and to really endanger Purdue's prospects for re-election to the Senate. It's an interesting test theory of that, that that may not be as galvanizing in deeper blue states or places where the politics is obviously more progressive. Uh, but, you know, Democrats in Georgia have operated sort of under that alternative theory that the, the politics of Georgia are more progressive and that these issues like healthcare and economic security should be central, but that that may not actually be the message that wins in the suburbs. It's, it's going to be an interesting 
push and pull, I think, of, of what the 2020 campaign is about, particularly if this is a lingering issue. You know, maybe the answer for Democrats is it's both and, but it's going to be interesting to find out. Do you have any closing thoughts before we get out of here? I, I, I kind of feel like we all felt this was inevitable, but it still kind of feels weird that we're here. Welcome yeah. to Impeach Pod. <laughs> yeah, agreed. So from now on, we've renamed the pod. It's Impeach Pod. No, not really. You're not going to hear us go on about this endlessly, but, you know, it is going to be the talk relevant of... relevant to Georgia. It is also going to be the talk of Washington incessantly for the next several months, so we will generally keep you updated, but not suffocate you with it. But with that, I think we are going to leave that there. We will be back on Friday with an interview with Michael Owens. He is a Democratic candidate for Congress. He is primarying a sitting Democrat, David Scott. So you're going to hear from him about his views and how he approaches a primary challenge. And then we're going to be back to talk about some of the other issues because we're not leaving those issues behind. There was there were big marches related to climate change last weekend, a lot of action globally on this issue while the U.S. has not led on that issue, that was one that sort of got swallowed by today's news cycle, but that's a topic that we want to come back to. And there's lots of interesting stuff going on in state and local politics that we'll keep you up on. But for now, we're going to leave it there, and we will talk to y'all on Friday and more next week. Bye, guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.